Welcome to the 275th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Mallory Ketaki, artist in residence with the Community Environmental Health Program at the University of New Mexico College of Pharmacy. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time and many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korea Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. Just want to underline that. I'm still getting really great suggestions from listeners for topics and people they'd like to hear from and people suggesting themselves. We'll be continuing to schedule COVID calls calls for the foreseeable future, so please don't hesitate. As of today, May 11th, 2021, there are 3,306,038 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States from COVID-19 has now gone to 582,163 lives lost. In India, 250,025 people have died from COVID-19, and that's up from 246,100 46 deaths reported yesterday. Just staggering day-to-day totals coming from India at this time. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Mansoor Atisham, writer who brought Bhopal to life, dies at 73. This was written by Catherine Q. Seeley and appeared May 8th in the Those We've Lost section of the New York Times. Much of the outside world, the city of Bhopal, India, lingers as an emblem of industrial disaster, the place where a 1984 toxic gas leak from a Union carbide plant killed thousands of people instantly and up to 15,000 people over time. Manzur Atisham, a Bhopal native who was one of the most significant contemporary voices in Hindi literature, showed his readers a far more complex place. To be sure, that disaster often hovers metaphorically and otherwise in his works. One of his most acclaimed books, The Tale of the Missing Man, which appeared in 1995, his alienated anti-hero was with a prostitute behind his wife's back on the night of the gas leak. But in Mr. Akasham's hands, Bhopal was a living presence, almost a character, whose changes and rich history he chronicled with forensic precision. He was a walker and city dweller, so his books are thick with description of the ever-changing contours of the landscape. Jason Grunbaum, who with Ulrika Stark translated the tale of the missing man into English, said in a phone interview. He had this almost magnifying glass of an eye, Mr. Grunbaum added. If a cinema hall was raised or a new suburb was being built, he would describe these changes with a sensitivity, caring, and love as if he were if it were part of his own corporal organism. 
Mr. Atisham died in Bhopal on April 26th. He was 73. Media reports said he died of the coronavirus, which has swept across the subcontinent with ferocity in recent weeks. His wife died of the virus in December, and his older brother died of it more recently. Mr. Atisham's survivors include two daughters and a younger brother. During three decades of writing fiction, Mr. Atisham raised important questions about Indian-Muslim identity, about deteriorating Hindu-Muslim relations, and about the psychological aftershocks of the 1947 partition of India and Pakistan. In The Tale of the Missing Man, said in the years from 1960s to the 1990s, the specter of partition looms as a historical backdrop for its anti-hero, who suffers from a postmodern condition, a murky mix of alienation, guilt, and anxiety that cannot be diagnosed. Squibb in New York Magazine in 2007 hailed it as one of the world's best untranslated novels. It lost that distinction in 2018 when it was published in an English translation by Mr. Grunebaum and Ms. Stark, who both teach in the Department of South Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago. Mr. Atisham was especially taken with the translation, which received the Global Humanities Translation Prize. The English reincarnation of my novel is so moving, he told interviewers for the journal Public Seminar in 2018. It's stolen my heart from the Hindi original. Andrew Atisham was born in Bhopal on April the 3rd, 1948, and raised in a middle-class Muslim family. He was educated at Aligarh Muslim University, what is now the Maulana Azad National Institute of Technology in Bhopal. Parents wanted him to become an engineer. He tried for a few years, but his real passion was literature, and he soon abandoned engineering to write full-time. When his brother opened a furniture showroom in the late 1970s, he hired Manzur to help manage it, which gave him a way to support himself while he wrote. He was fluent in Urdu, Hindi, and English, but wrote in Hindi, India's most widely spoken language, to reach the most readers. He also loved the theater and movies. Some of his works were dramatized. He landed a bit part in the 1994 Merchant Ivory film In Custody, about how Urdu, the language of northern India, was in danger of extinction as modernization obscured its contributions to Indian culture. The obituary of Manzur Atisham, who died of COVID-19 in India last month. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation today really excited to introduce my guest to you. Let me do that now. Her name is Mallory Ketaki. Mallory is from the rural Pueblo of Zuni in western New Mexico. She's the mother of two and shares residence in both Albuquerque and Zuni Pueblo. She received her bachelor's degree in biology with a minor in art studio in the summer of 2009 from University of New Mexico, Albuquerque. She's currently the artist in residence with the Community Environmental Health Program at the University of New Mexico College of Pharmacy. Her work with the CEHP has focused on tailoring scientific concepts into culturally relatable art and graphics for Native American communities affected by abandoned uranium mines in the United States, specifically in the Southwest region of the country. Her work has shifted recently into creating COVID-19 public service announcements and videos for indigenous communities. Mallory, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Uh, just about Kwetauke. Kwetauke. Yes. Okay, thank you for that correction. <laughs> oh, no problem. So let's just start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. Okay. I'm calling from home here in Albuquerque, um, New Mexico. The current situation we're in right now in New Mexico is actually um, kind of a good one. We are about 42% fully vaccinated um, in the state. Uh, about 53% uh, have at least their first uh, dose if they're taking either the Moderna or the Pfizer one. Um, in Zuni, we have not had um, any positive cases of COVID. Um, We've had one since April 15th, so our reservation has lifted some of its um, restrictions. Uh, we were closed down. We were shut down as a tribe. Um, no outsiders were allowed to come in. Um, uh, we have suffered um, a loss of about 50 individuals from our community, and um, we have about 1,200 positive cases um, to date with um, over a thousand recoveries. Uh, and that is just uh, Zuni Pueblo itself within New Mexico. Hmm. And about the vaccination, how has that been working? Where are people getting vaccinated? Right now, um, the tribes are actually doing exceptionally well. The, the tribes are uh, getting doses enough to cover the entire community plus more. Um, and they're reaching out to surrounding communities, non-native uh, non communities to start helping with uh, rolling out the vaccine. Uh, the IHS um, facilities have been doing really good and reaching out and and um, getting uh, those vaccinations. I believe Navajo Nation has a really great number. They're at about 80% vaccinated. Um, that's a really good number. I believe their population is in reaching the 200,000s. So 80% is very good. Uh, Zuni, I believe we are at about 70% the last I heard, but it's, it's still a good uh, number. We are about about 13,000 tribal members in Zuni right now. And like I said, tribally, they are doing really well in, in getting the vaccine out. Um, there are drive up vaccinations, the hospitals, and even here right now, you know, Walmart, Albertsons, the grocery stores are handing out vaccines on an appointment basis. Well, that's really encouraging to hear that. And of course, with the recent news that 12 to 15 year olds will also be vaccinated, that's going to increase that percentage probably too. Yes, yes absolutely. And, and the work has just begun to trying to reach out to that age group right now to, to make sure that we're making them aware that they can now be vaccinated. So you mentioned there's about 13,000 people living there in Zuni Pueblo. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just offering some context, a little bit of the history of that community? Yeah. Um, so Zuni Pueblo is situated on the western um, border of New Mexico. It's about uh, 150 miles west of Albuquerque, which um, is the largest city in New Mexico. Zuni Pueblo is one of 19 other pueblos. Um, we are the largest both in population and landmass. We are about about 450 uh, acres, um, our reservation size right now. Uh, we have land holdings in um, several counties, Cibola, McKinley County, and parts of Arizona. 
And so, but we're all situated in one area um, of Zuni that traditionally we call Halalitiwana, which is the center place, the, the middle place. And um, we've been there since, you know, time immemorial, I believe. They've calculated us to be there um, about 5,000 years, a little less than that. Um, we were one of the first contacts from uh, Spanish, um, uh, from the Spaniards in about 1539. Uh, we had an encounter with uh, one of the more Moorish slaves that came into the village and, you know, announced themselves. And um, we had contact with uh, Coronado's expedition, um, which, you know, in turn led to um, the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, where we tried to um, gain back our independence and gain back our um, right to um, practice our our uh, culture, our religion. Um, and from dozens of other Pueblos to the current day, we are left with 19. Uh, it was about 200 different Pueblos um, in the 1500s before Spanish um, arrival. So Zuni Pueblo, we speak uh, the Zuni language, which is a language isolate. And I believe it is partially due to our geographical uh, isolation. We are in the high mountains of the Zuni mountains, um, which range about six to 8,000 um, feet in altitude. So we're kind of high up there. We're also stuck in this little mountainous valley. Uh, looks like a fortress from afar. It's a real nice, yeah, real nice place, mesas everywhere we have our own watershed we have aquifers um it's like the perfect place to be perfect place to grow up um our 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 school district uh is is owned by the tribe so a lot of our teachings are immersive the kids are learning in both english and the zuni language and so it's it's um uh we're you know we're we're a non-gaming tribe so we don't have any resources that we're selling either. So we're, we're kind of just trying to make sure that the culture and the the um, ideals of our people and our people are thriving and continuing forward right now in, the, in this new new age. But um, we come from very old roots and very old traditions that uh, we're trying to um, maintain and, and pass on to the younger generation. Well, thank you for that description and for that history. And I hope everyone uh, who doesn't know it now knows a little bit of it and can do some reading and, and follow up and, and learn even more. Um, I remember in graduate school reading about the Pueblo Revolt and um, had never learned about it before at all, never yeah. heard of it. Uh, and it's an extraordinary history uh, and yeah. really important, should be part of every curriculum that all students mm -hmm. in the United States read. I wonder if you um, could tell me a little bit about the economic base there today. Yeah, and Zuni Pueblo, and pretty much as it's always been probably since the early 1970s, but there was a arts and crafts boom uh, around that time where uh, Zuni uh, uh, silversmiths um, had an explosion of, of the, the desire for the artwork and for their jewelry. And at the same time, we had um, some of our older traditional art forms like pottery and weaving have a, a revitalization and it became a source of income. So right now in Zuni Pueblo, it's a good uh, size number, about 80. From last time I checked, it was like 80 to 85 percent of all households 
our um, the main source of income comes from art. So cottage art, there's, uh, you know, multi-generational households with several family members that are making art as a form of income, whether it's jewelry, pottery, traditional art forms, um, painting, uh, which is a little bit few and far, but the traditional arts, fetish carving are, um, you know, before the pandemic, we definitely had a market for that in person with the different shows all over the country and in the Southwest. Um, and I believe during the pandemic, um, a lot of artists have had to either seek other jobs or have stuck to online sales, which, you know, is a little harder on such a rural place where um, internet access is still a little bit seedy. There's still um, uh, dark spots within the reservation where some people have no access to, to the internet. So. Uh, the, the arts cult colony took a really big hit during the pandemic, but I mean, um, when the jewelry boom happened in the seventies, it just really started out this, um, uh, it, it was the way it was, um, every household, somebody's an artist. <laughs> I, I can't think of anywhere else in, in North America that I could imagine is, is like that. I mean, to grow up in a, and say you're going to be an artist is, um, of course, something that a lot of families take with great pride, but it's it's not the norm. You're describing a community in which it's kind of considered normal that every family is going to have an artist in it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it's it, as I said, uh, everything's immersive in Zuni. So even the cultural uh, arts programs, um, they're taught from elementary to high school. In high school, they refine it for you to join the market and to actually make money off of the artwork that you're doing. And so, um, you're taught if, if you, if you, you might not be from a, uh, like a pottery family, but you learn pottery in high school and you can, you know, create your own legacy, as they say. Um, like I'm, I'm an artist, a painter and a potter, but my family line, they're all jewelers <laughs> and I cannot do jewelry at all. I've tried and I failed terribly. <laughs> so a lot of what I learned is from, uh, my peers in school and, you know, course you know my artistic parents it, it uh, has a lot to do with that too <laughs> well we're going to talk about some of your specific artworks here in, in a little bit and we're going to even show some so um people should look forward to that but before we turn to that let's talk to about another um part of your life and your work and that has to do with public health can you set mm -hmm. the stage for us a little bit in understanding some of the public health how public health works there in zuni pueblo how people get um health access that they need, medical access that they need, but also some of the perhaps unique uh, public health concerns that you have there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Zuni Pueblo, as I said, is, is a very rural town. Um, the closest uh, metropolis or closest city that has, you know, like, um, like a Walmart or gas stations is still a good 30 minutes away. It's Gallup, New Mexico. It's the closest town. So a lot of the um, services that we have um, in the village, we do have a IHS facility, the Zuni Comprehensive Community Health Center. Um, it is, I believe, a um, you know, there there it offers a wide variety of services. Um, they have inpatient, they have lab, um, you know, dental, um, a birthing center, pretty much everything you need. Um, for, you know, subacute care, um, anything that uh, needs more 
work or, you know, surgical procedures, um, patients are flown out to uh, larger hospitals like here in um, Albuquerque, the UNM, Loveless or Presbyterian. Um, sometimes they even get transferred to places like Gallup, RMCH, the Gallup Indian Medical Center. But um, Zuni, we do have our own little clinic um, where you can go and be seen for preventative health care. We have urgent care. We have an ER. Um, and so a lot of, you know, there are health disparities within the village and there is an underutilization of these, um, uh, what the hospital offers, I believe in part to a lot of it has to do with, you know, historical trauma, economical issues, transportation, and something that not a lot of people might understand is the cultural and language barriers between patient and provider. And so that's been like the biggest mission um, for my work is to recognize where these disparities happen and why they're happening and how do we help move it along. And, you know, just through firsthand um, experience, family members, sick family members, and, and what they go through with the hospital, sometimes you have um, hesitancy with people wanting to go to the hospital. Um, and a lot of the hesitancy is because that idea of not being able to communicate what ails them, uh, whether it's it's a pain threshold, pain level, or a symptom that they might be embarrassed with talking to a non um, non uh, Zuni uh, physician. Uh, we, to this date, we still have no Zuni um, physicians that were, you know, born and raised on a reservation that know the language and the culture. We are still. Um, short in that department but um a lot of the turnaround of physicians also uh, plays a, a part in why it, it can get frustrating when you're trying to seek care um, we see other people in other places have a doctor that follows them for years and years or or, or uh, a sharing of providers that just really knows them and their health care here like what we see all the time is that that turnaround of physicians who come and go so often we never build that repertoire. We never build that relationship with someone we trust enough. And I think that's a lot of the reasons why um, certain uh, individuals stop going to the hospital. They feel that they're just constantly um, resharing their uh, issues and their problems, and it just kind of never moves anywhere. But a lot of it also has to do with um, you know, mental health issues and, and our spiritual practices where some people won't go because they think it's more of a, of a spiritual issue, a cultural issue, and they'll seek out um, help from a local shaman or medicine man. And um, so that underutilization of the hospital and the fear behind it, there is a fear. There's still mm. recollections from historical traumas and what happens to, to my blood when they draw my blood up there? Like we have all these misconceptions that are still very present. And so it's been the biggest thing in Zumi right now. Um, but we're, we're moving along. We're having more familiar face providers, um, whether they're, uh, physicians assistants, nurse practitioners. We are starting to see a lot more, uh, community members take upon those challenges and becoming healthcare providers. I feel like it's bringing more easement and the more we understand the better questions we're able to ask also. So on the public health side, that is where I feel um, we were missing is to just help people understand and um, 
break down all the things that they might be getting from the, the, the hospital. Maybe they don't understand their ailment. Maybe you don't understand the suggestions from the doctor. So that that's kind of where um, that segue into becoming uh, trying to find effective ways to communicate healthcare have been um, slowly coming about. And lo and behold, art has been one of them. And Kazini um, right now, our main uh, issues within the community, of course, um, have really been diabetes, um, kidney disease, and as of lately, cancers. So we've been uh, really driving home these ideas on preventative care and trying to educate and expand the knowledge on what it, what, how you take care of yourself and your body and um, the, the way that my art connected to the hospital and that idea was, I believe in, um, yeah, 2007, I, I hung up some work at the hospital for the people and uh, there are different little uh, paintings of, of body parts and um, uh, systems in our body down to the cells, um, just adorned with Zuni designs and motifs, but they're kind of also very technical on what the structure of the bone looks like, the animal cell, the different things. And I didn't know that at the time that a lot of Zuni community members were, you know, stopping in the hallway, looking at these paintings. And when it was their time to see the doctor, they would ask about, hey, I just, you know, saw a picture of the kidney in the hallway. And you said something about, you know, my kidney health. What is, you know, there? what is this? Is that what it looks like? What does a healthy kidney look like? It, it opened a dialogue that we didn't know was going to happen just based off of the paintings. So there has been some dialogue in it and just like, uh, you know, a friend of mine, he actually approached me one day and said that it made him look further deeper into himself and to start looking at his health care a little more in depth. Like he, he felt more proud to be Zuni that day, he said, looking at these paintings and realizing that there is a cultural aspect to how we take care of our bodies and why we take care of ourselves and others. And he said that that was the beginning of his of the road to his uh, sobriety. Um, he started, um, you know, he he quit alcohol and he started taking care of himself. And he said that um, he was interviewed on a local newspaper saying that, and it was really neat to see that that's what his response was when he saw the artwork. So that is where um, my career started in uh, advancing these ideas and allowing the people to open this dialogue between them and providers, researchers, um, and, you know, academia in general. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to artist Mallory Kwetaki today. We're talking about life in the Zuni Pueblo, and uh, we're going to turn to talking about COVID. We're just hearing a little bit about um, Mallory's work and how it's 
intervening in the public health space there. Mallory, there's one other part of the story I think we should pick up, and it's actually how you and I met, which was um, talking about environmental health and the nuclear legacy there uh, in the Pueblo. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, Green Pueblo itself, we are more considered downwinders from the mining um, uh, that's going in and around the area. The closest mine to us is the Church Rock Mine, which is on the Navajo Nation. Um, it is in, uh, right outside Gallup, New Mexico, so it's about 30 miles away. However, like I said, we are downwind from it. Uh, we are uh, along the water uh, route that the um, Church Rock Mine spill in 1979 uh, happened. So a lot of that water that spilled from the, the dam that uh, that was holding um, remnants from the mine uh, flooded into the arroyos and into the, the waterways all the way into Arizona. Uh, we're in that path, um, and we fought off um, a coal mine back in the early 2000s, which we won, and we're thankful um, that they haven't returned. <laughs> but uh, in the area of um, Gallup um, and just, you know, the greater Navajo Nation, there's thousands of abandoned uranium mines and that the most uh, the one that gets the most attention is is the one at church rock because of the spill um there are communities living in and around there um right very right near um tilling piles and mine waste piles which are still being um worked out through uh the government and through the courts on who cleans that up when and how a lot of processes, a lot of remediation processes that are still and have yet to happen. Um, and then uh, our cousin community, our cousin Pueblo, which is the Laguna Pueblo, is also um, in the shadows of one of the largest open pit mines in the world. At one point, it was the largest open pit um, mine, uh, uranium mine, and they are about 80, 80 miles to the east of Zuni Pueblo. Um, but we all share in, in our culture and in, 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 as Pueblo people. So that the injustices that have happened, um, in those lands is, it's, it's, I mean, it's a lot. It's, there's so many things that have happened. And now that the people themselves have come to learn about the dangers and the hazards of uranium and its um, mine waste, there's so many other heavy metals that are involved in in the mining of uranium and some of these are seeping um, into uh, areas where humans are um, growing um, or have agriculture fields are watering um, their animals there's cattle that are roam freely in uh, in these lands that are contaminated on both you know uh, laguna and navajo reservations and so this concern is one of the most um highly uh, controversial topics because, you know, you both, you see both sides, you know, mining did bring economic growth to these areas. Um, and yet, uh, years later, we're now seeing um, the toll that it's taking on the people. There are, you know, higher rates of disease and cancers and, and um, other health ailments within uh, Navajo Nation and especially those that live in and around these abandoned mines. So um, we have several studies going on under the uh, UNM College of Pharmacy. We have uh, uh, three programs that 
we uh, work with. One is the longest one that's been going, which is the Navajo birth cohort study. And we follow pregnant mothers and their children for up to nine years after birth. And we look at their um, overall health growth by doing surveys, uh, simple checkups. Um, we also um, follow up on a different, um, so my part in that is that I help with the eye tracking portion where we um, study uh, emotional growth in children. Um, some of it, uh, this program can be used also to identify uh, autism in, in children and whatnot, but that that study came about because of an observation that um, four-year-olds uh, around, you know, should be be able to talk and be able to carry conversations. But through another program before this, they recognized that there was a lot of four-year-old Navajo children who weren't speaking yet or were a little, um, you know, having a hard time with other things, other cognitive, you know, uh, normal growth functions. And so this is why we started looking into um, the children to see if any of these exposures are the root cause. And so we have the Navajo birth cohort study. We have the Superfund Center, which is the metals um, program. That one looks into uh, abandoned uranium mines and its, and its exposures in both uh, Navajo and Laguna Pueblo. Um, and then we have our native EH Equity Center, which looks into both Navajo and also Cheyenne River Sioux um, in North Dakota and um, the uh, Crow Nation in Montana. So we look at all their um, uh, mining legacies in their areas, the possible contaminants and exposures that people may or may not be exposed to. And, um, you know, our studies are ongoing and we are still collecting. And we are also, um, you know, part of the, the little, uh, the three centers that we have, my part is, you know, not just being the artist in resident, but also helping with the idea of um, community outreach and allowing the people to have access to the data that we have, the, to have um, the ability um, to, to talk on their own, to, to approach their um, government officials, to approach um, policymakers, and they give them that um, community uh opportunity um it's all it's you know some there's some grassroots and nonprofits out there that are helping advocate for them but we're also you know kind of doing the same by giving them the information they need to go out and 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 start helping um their communities uh with uh, remedial processes cleanups and more research and um it's been quite a journey because I, to be honest, did not know half of the things that mm. I've been uh, shown in, uh, and it's so close to, to our reservation. I mean, we're in Gallup all the time. The waterways are all interconnected and it's, um, it's something that I feel in for us to help with the communities. We want their voice also. We just don't want um, the idea that, oh, it's, it's, it's a contaminated piece of land. Um, you know, others could be like, so what? It's like, no, there's there's a need to know on the other end for either ac academic researchers, scientific researchers, and, you know, government, EPA, NIH, for them to know the importance of land to Native peoples. Um, majority of Native American populations are cultural. One of our greatest um, core value is that we are, 
um, custodial to the lands that we live on. So it's very important to us as, as a people to protect the land. You know, Mother Earth is, is, is a person and not a place for us to just kind of walk in and do what we want. And so that, that idea and that thought of how connected we are to the lands uh, is something that I feel that was missing in a lot of the conversations when it came to um, research on exposure and contamination and, and importance on why, you know, on the other hand, why there's herds of uh, researchers on our lands right now. Um, mm. there, you know, there is a reason why we, we, we want them there and we need them there. So we kind of also have to balance that idea that as researchers, we can't just come in and barge in, that we also have to pay attention to cultural values and cultural um, right. calls. And each tribe is different. So, Well, thank you for, for sharing that. And it's, I mean, what you're describing, also there are the um, health impacts of being in a community um, with that kind of uh, extractive industry close by and the longstanding legacy of it. One of the real challenges of that, from my understanding also, is the uncertainty. And that, that goes along with nuclear exposures, broadly speaking, um, in other places as well. So people might not know if the health problem they're having is attributable to heavy metals in the water or, or particulates in the, in the air. So there's this mental health dimension to it as well. And I wonder, um, how you see those connected. We should just turn to COVID for a second. I mean, the experience of the pandemic there in the Pueblo, when it first started, you mentioned as we were beginning our discussion that there was a full lockdown. Um, but as you were also talking earlier, because it's a rural community, because there are underlying um, health issues and health inequalities, um, you know, it seems like a community in which um, there would have been a lot of concern with a pandemic like this could could come in. So I wonder if we could sort of talk about that aspect of it. What was it like there to manage the pandemic with all of these other things in the background in terms of health of the community? Yeah. Um, the, when the pandemic happened, it, it was very surreal to, to us. Um, I mean, as I mentioned before, the historical traumas of the past it, when you heard pandemic, you, you heard of smallpox, you heard of the Spanish flu, you heard, and those things happened years before any of us were really around. And so we, it, it, it struck a certain kind of fear in the people. And, and yet again, that there was also a misconception and a misunderstanding on what this, uh, what the coronavirus really was. Um, I was out doing, uh, collecting, um, data in, on Navajo Nation in that first week of March of 2020 when, um, I mean, it was already in the news. We heard that, you know, New York and LA, Seattle were being hit by this, this virus that, um, they were still learning about. And it was that first week in March that, um, we got pulled out of our, um, research trip, our data collection trip because, um, Tuba City in, in, um, Arizona, which is kind of the heart of the Navajo Nation, they got word that they had several people come in with symptoms of COVID. And sure enough, they were positive and it spread like wildfire from there. Um, 
I was supposed to drive home to Zuni thereafter after my collection trip. And um, I called my mom. Um, uh, she was uh, going through chemotherapy at the time. And I told her I did not want to risk this um, virus on you. I've been to a place where it's considered a hotspot. It's, uh, there's an outbreak. Um, I'll, you know, I'll tell you more on it once I learn more about what this coronavirus is, but you guys saw the news, uh, what we thought was only in China and in the big cities, it's here. And, you know, at the same time, I told my father, who is a, a, a tribal councilman, I said, you need to tell your council that it is here, even though it's, um, about 200 miles away into the city. I said, it's, it's here. It, we can say it's here. And um, it took a while for our tribe to respond. I think um, they didn't shut down or do any precautions until April, uh, about a month after that. By that time, we had a small outbreak at our own clinic, um, starting from the uh, dialysis center. And as I had mentioned before, kidney disease, uh, chronic kidney fa uh, disease is, is um, a, a, one of the biggest um, diseases in Zuni. And so a lot of our people utilize the dialysis unit and that outbreak outbreak happened there, the initial one. And uh, it just spread like wildfire from there on. And, and as I like to bring up that idea of having multi-generational households and it's seen across um, different tribal communities where um, there's several um, generations of families living in one household. Um, I, I do know that even in one of my family members' homes, there's the grandfather, the, their children, their grandchildren, and then now their grandchildren are having babies, and they also live in the same household. Mm. And usually there are a couple people that leave out of town to work, and that made the spread so much more easier. There is no way to um, quarantine. We don't have... Um, hotels or any kind of lodging within the tribe to house that many people to quarantine themselves. So if an individual got sick, the whole household had to quarantine. Um, we were, uh, it wasn't so recently that we were fortunate enough to receive uh, through the CARES Act. Um, we, uh, I guess they uh, procured RVs, um, little housing mobile units to um, house people to quarantine and it's just them and, and their families were, um, were not affected or were not positive from COVID. So a lot of, a lot of things had to happen. We are a very uh, tight knit community. Um, a lot of mental health issues began to sprout because we are very social. Our culture, our religious practices, we gather. Um, there is no word in Zuni to say, keep your distance mm. or don't go near somebody or you know it's don't gather that that whole idea that that word doesn't exist because everything we do it you know we you know in english we say that all the time it takes a village and so it took a village to not <laughs> get together and it, it was really hard to get that idea across um this ancient way of thinking that we we can no longer do what we normally do, and we have so many ceremonies surrounding our, our yearly calendar. We, we, um, we observe everything from the end of winter to the beginning of winter and everything in between. Um, 
all the spring, uh, the summers, the, we have so many ceremonies that we as a people do to keep the balance and the harmony of, you know, our spiritual, um, world. And, um, those things had to be either stopped or, or lessened and altered in a way to where, um, it was still safe to do so. And that inability to gather and see people and to participate and to, um, just be hands on with the different ceremonies, we started noticing, you know, the, the suicide ideations and the different substance abuse um, levels that just uh, rose um, once the pandemic had the village shut down. We have a curfew uh, before when it was really um, when COVID was in full swing. We had a six o'clock and eight o'clock evening curfews. Everyone had to be at home. No one was allowed on the streets. Um, even the uh, certain weekends, uh, they wouldn't really allow people to leave. You just stay home. If you need anything, contact somebody and they'll bring it to you. Designate only one person to leave the reservation. We only have two grocery stores in Zuni. We are a food desert, um, which, you know, plays in part to the obesity and diabetes rates in Zuni. Um, I think the, you know, the, the whole idea of having to travel far to, to even get food, you know, also caused different, um, problems within the tribe. And how do we, how do we feed 12,000 people plus in, in a, in a small reservation with just two, two grocery stores? And so, um, that, not only that, but also just, you know, the jobs, uh, people getting laid off and the money and the, the art shows that no longer happened, the in-person um, selling, like it took an economic downfall as, as much as it did uh, socially, mentally. Um, uh, we've, we've all been impacted when one, when as much as, you know, there, are, there is of us, when one person dies, it's, it still affects everybody. We all know each other in some form or fashion. We are all related in some form or fashion uh, amongst our tribes. And so, um, you know, that, that hurt, that pain was felt. And um, we had to address the idea that we were not only mourning the people that we lost, but we were mourning ceremony. We were mourning our right to, to gather and our right to, to, to pray, basically. Um, and uh, a lot of our traditional uh, ceremony and doings have, have been put on hold and or altered and it, it's it's for the elderly especially who are our number one assets it was really painful for them um that that is who we are trying to protect because that is who kept who is keeping our culture alive um we still have a lot of stuff to learn from our elders and that's who we're trying to protect um that is our biggest cultural asset right now and unfortunately we we've lost along the way many to COVID. Just to follow up on on that, you know, funeral practices have uh, had to be modified in so many cultures around the world in the middle of of COVID. How did you adapt there in Zuni Pueblo to the fact, as you said, people couldn't couldn't meet, mm -hmm. uh, and yet you had to try to mark, you know, the loss of life. How did you how did you meet that? Very heartbreaking because uh, our 
burial practices are very hands-on. Um, we bury our own, um, and we have ceremonies that happen, and those ceremonies were no longer allowed. And so, um, and I and I just want to recognize uh, my cousin um, Kali Eli, who um, is a Navy veteran. He took upon himself to reach out to the many connections he had through his fetish business and, and just overall how he was able to make these connections. Amazing. But he went and he procured, um, biohazard suits, um, PPE, gloves, cleaning supplies, and he supplied households who were in quarantine with these cleaning supplies and masks and, and then he went on to being able to find, you know, bunny suits and the different, you know, booties, coverings, face shields, head head covers to people who had to bury the dead. Um, and in our culture, it's usually your um, your male family members. Um, so they, my cousin, you know, was going around teaching these gentlemen how to don the uh, biohazard clothing and how to properly wear and dispose of it after so they can bury their own because at that point you just you received a body in a bag from the hospital you're not allowed to open it you're, you never even saw your family member in the hospital once they went in with COVID and they passed you, you never saw them again and and in our culture it's it, a lot of our loss, there's no closure because that's part of our process, our grieving process, our mourning process is we have ceremonies and we have ways that we, in which we, we mourn properly. And with this being taken away, the one thing they still let us have is that we bury our own. And yet it was, it's just really heartbreaking for, you know, a family to call my cousin uh, at all hours of the night and say how do we wear this how do we put this on so we can bury our loved one in the morning or later today and you know the the work and the effort that he put in at least still kept something for us when we had to bury our loved ones because he lost his grandmother one of the first ones um to have passed because she got infected during the um dialysis uh, outbreak and so he knew what to, he had to do and he was sharing. And although it's really taboo to really talk uh, a lot about death and dying in, in our culture, someone had to take a stance and someone had to make sure that we were still allowed to do something, even if it was just that part. And he did a lot. And, and I mean, the suggestions they were for us actually goes against our religious beliefs, uh, cremation. Um, and we don't do that so it really really affected and I know a lot of families still have no closure to this day you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Mallory Kwetaki today about life and death in Zuni Pueblo in this period of COVID-19 Mallory I'd like to talk more specifically about your art you were sharing a little bit ago about the tradition of of uh, the strong tradition in families of passing down artistic knowledge. And you said, come from a family of jewelers and uh, that didn't work for you. You're a visual artist. Um, I'd like to, um, so I want to show some of the work. I'll bring it up on screen here for a second while I'm getting ready to do that. Um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how your um, technique is different, how you approach 
the artwork. And specifically, you are a public health educator through your artwork. And so there's a lot going on here. Mm -hmm. Could you set the stage for us a little bit to understand your artwork? Yeah, well, um, coming from a a public community, and it kind of goes the same for a lot of other Native tribes across the country, we're visual learners. Um, We like pretty things. We like looking at, you know, just robust color, bold colors, um, design, and uh, a lot of motifs and designs that you see that I use have have meaning, whether um, they're pottery designs or whether they're weaving designs, there's a meaning behind all of them, and there's symbology that we use constantly, and so I like using those ideas, um, whether if I'm painting or not, I, which is my main, um, um, my main style is acrylic painting. I like using acrylic um, on wood and or canvas. Uh, the most recent technique I've been using, um, and I'm still learning, is uh, digital art. Um, uh, there's a quite a bit of a learning curve to it, but I've been uh, trying really hard uh, because I can put words on this, whereas in an, an acrylic painting, I try not to put any wording on it and instead let the art speak for itself. But with the posters that we started creating, and and, and like I said, it was, um, it was kind of by request um, that, hey, you know, the CDC did release these infographics and these guidelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, we're just like, a lot of people are looking past that because it has no affect to them because there's nothing relatable on it. There's no, you know, hey, let's bring them in. How do we, you know, bring the rope closer to them to actually see what we're trying to convey? And um, of course, they said we need to indigenize these uh, CDC guidelines and these posters. And so that's where the the COVID uh, response um, PSAs began. Um, I basically uh, took what CDC was releasing and and use their um, their guidelines to create um, awareness. And um, a lot of the posters that I created, though, are, however, kind of more directed towards Pueblo communities um, because of how we have mentioned that that close knit society where every you know everybody does something together. So using the idea of the culture and then the imagery that um, and, and the idea that we have to be positive we don't want to a lot of the the complaints coming from the community um when especially when it came to the door signs they said that oh it's just this uh piece of paper with a big old red uh wording or yellow paper with the black warning symbols uh saying you know do not enter COVID 19 quarantine or or something really negative and they said we don't like negative and and that is a it's a cultural protocol um we try not to bring up negative subjects um, beforehand, kind of ease our way into it. So they wanted more brighter, more uh, lively <laughs> looking posters for such a dark time in our life. And so, right. um, yeah, these uh, were created to, to make sure that we still see the beauty every day, regardless of what's going on around us. And that's kind of who we are as a people. And so. Right. I love that statement you just made. It's time to indigenize these CDC posters and make them real for our community. I want to show a few of them, if you don't mind. Uh, I've got one up here on screen. Maybe you could tell us some of the things we should be looking for in these posters to understand how they've been indigenized. Yeah. So um, 
as we said that um, the whole social distancing issue is really hard to comprehend for the people. So, you know, we're just trying to tell them being apart is only for a while. Um, and, you know, we're using the separations of, you know, cloud designs because, you know, clouds move along and they still come back. So we're, you know, we're kind of taking that idea that the bottom and top designs are clouds. Um, you know, the, the uh, arrow, the arrowhead is, is like a symbol for strength. So it's like, you know, we're strong and we will remain strong. But being apart, we have to do it and it's only going to be for a while. So we're, we're taking these ideas and using, you know, throwing in little cultural aspects so that, you know, they remember. And um, something like this painting here, or this uh, digital print, um, the three symbols, the circle symbols on the left are all um, kind of like, like medallions, uh, designs that are um, important in each culture. So the top uh, left one, the medicine wheel, has a lot of significance to um, the plains in, uh, Plains tribes uh, in the north, so um, the Sioux, the the, the um, Lakota, Crow, um, those tribes have a uh, the the medicine wheel has an importance to them. Each color means uh, a different thing, a direction, and and, and uh, pretty much morals and um, uh, core values. Um, the uh, middle uh, symbol is a picture of a, a Navajo wedding basket. And that in itself too has a, a designs in it and with meaning about how, you know, you live your life. Um, and, you know, the, the harmony between the, the night or the, the sky and the ground and one another. Um, the bottom motif is, uh, uh my rendition of a Zuni, um, sunflower painting, which, um, you know, the, the resilience of flowers and florals, you know, we, they bloom every year. We know they're there. We know they're resilient. Um, and so just that idea of regrowth and, and coming back um, to, to, to our ways. And of course, you know, you see the arrowheads pointing at the <laughs> COVID, the coronavirus right. itself, trying to fight it off. And so that's kind of, you know, the idea behind that and the colors, you know, red, turquoise, turquoise is, you know, one of our most, uh, you could call it a, a holy color to both, you know, Pueblo and Navajo. Um, So much happening here, and even as you're describing it, I'm learning, you know, not familiar with these different motifs, for example. So this is carrying a lot of cultural power in this organization of images you have on the left. And then on the right, it's language that we've all become sort of used to, you know, help our fight against COVID-19 or this idea of the social vaccine, protecting relatives. Um, but this enriches them. I mean, this makes them personal and uh I wonder what kind of feedback you've been getting about these. They, um, it took me a while because I was, you know, going through uh, my own um, mourning processes, um, both uh, losing family, friends, and my mother. To uh, she didn't pass from COVID, but her uh, she succumbed to her cancer uh, last year. So it, it kind of took me a while to 
get the ball rolling. And um, no one was pushing me to do any of this. But once it came out, I was like, oh, finally, you know, okay, we knew you're going to make something like this. And we were just waiting because people are seriously just walking past the ones we download from the internet, the ones, you know, the facilities, the hospitals, or, you know, like I said, the CDC are sending to us. It's, it's infographics that make no sense to them because <laughs> right. there's no cultural connection. So they're not stopping to actually look at it. But if you, you're putting on right. like these images we know and, and we love, we're going to stop and we're going to look at it. So we're going to hang it up with pride. And it's, that's the thing is that, it's more um, pleasing to the eye and as does it portray that the importance that we need to keep ourselves safe. We need to protect others. I'm sorry to hear about your mother and I hope you're finding some peace with that. Um, yeah. And making art through that time. Um, <laughs> hard to get started, but maybe I mean, based on the output, you found a way to work. I mean, each of these posters, I can only imagine how much time it makes. This one's interesting because it has this motif of the of the mask uh, healthcare worker right in the center. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's as if you know we're you know the the fight is there, and here is proof. Just basically, she's asking for our help um, to make sure she doesn't see any of us on her you know on her unit in her beds having to help. Um, from the COVID uh, disease or the virus. Now, this one addresses some of the issues you were talking about with social isolation and mm -hmm. how that uh, might have a particular resonance there in Zuni Pueblo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this um, piece was actually requested by uh, a behavioral health group that um, actually I joined not too long after this. It's a working group that we uh, Created to where we're trying to reach out to um, local communities, tribal communities, on how to keep your mind healthy during this this time. And uh, like I said, I use the um, the idea behind the medicine wheel because each color and each direction has a different meaning. So there's colors that refer to like your body, your mind, your spirit, and like what you do on a daily basis. So those are all broken down in within that color wheel and mm. And so a lot of tribes are, you know, are able to kind of connect that to that overall uh, knowing. It's, it's, uh, there's a term called indigenous ways of knowing, um, that, um, it's shared through, you know, it, it's, I don't want to call it universal idea, but it is kind of a, uh, general thinking with, um, especially with our spir spirituality, which is, is, um, a whole lot different than, uh, some cultures. And so that, that, ability to recognize um things of that nature things that are um i guess you can say esoteric but if we say the right words or show the right symbols it they'll get it they'll understand so that's one of the those pictures the medicine wheel. and this one comes to this issue of so this is a a, a sign that's meant to be placed on the front door mm -hmm. yes we are uh like i said they said they were only getting uh paper People who were on quarantine were only getting like a, a sheet of paper from the hospital or a command center of some sort that, um, incident command were giving out just, you know, plain red signs that said quarantine, do not enter. 
And so not necessarily everybody was under quarantine because they were infected. They were quarantined because they didn't want to be infected. They were social distancing. They were not welcoming visitors. And they're, they're saying like, how do we do that without, you know, these, um, just ugly negative signs. (laughs) And they said, and then we don't want to also stigmatize the fact that, we're all infected. Um, how, 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 what other ways can we show that we, you know, we're, we're not accepting visitors right now? So these signs were by request and, and, you know, made them really quickly so that there was a selection. And as I said, we updated some of these to where we're writing down resource numbers, you know, the local incident command, um, food pantries, even we're leaving blank sections for people to say, Hey, call us instead. Um, mm-hmm. So um, you can reach us here instead. And so we've, we've updated a lot of these flyers. This one, I mean, there's, there's so many layers to this. I'm noticing the arrowheads, which are um, part of the, the fight here. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's true, too. I mean, I think it's an important point to make. It's about um, families respecting each other's um, desire to protect their elders and everybody in the mm-hmm. house, yeah. which is running, as you said earlier, really against the grain, against the real fundamentals of Zuni mm-hmm. community values. So you do have to explain it. I mean, you do have to really sort of go that extra step. Mm-hmm. And this is a lot more powerful, I agree with you, than a, a sort of a generic CDC poster which makes it seem like the government has said we're going to do this and so i guess we're going to do it this is very personal feels like to me yeah yeah it it means because there are you know there are families and and individuals out there who still don't quite believe that this is happening um they're still kind of either misinformed or um, they don't get out much to actually realize what else is happening uh, in the world and that this pandemic is real and it is it's taking lives and so for it to be personalized to their community and where they're from, it's like you kind of want to start taking it seriously once you see, you know, the the local artists getting involved. It's 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 real. It's here. <laughs> and this is um similar to the first image uh, that we yeah. looked at. And, and this is the one focused on the mental health, and we we put in these resources, these numbers right. for people to call should they have any um need to speak to someone. I wanna, um, so these are posters that were all produced in the last year. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to, if it's okay, I'm going to back out of this screen and I'll make this link available uh, after the call so people can, can find it. Um, I located this, this is your artist page, wakelet.com slash at C-E-H-P underscore artist. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to repeat that again. Wakelet, W-A-K-E-L-E-T dot com slash at C-E-H-P underscore artist. And this is where you can see all of Mallory's work. And I just want to we won't have time to go through all of them, but I just, this is work that you made before the pandemic. Yeah. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about these, Mallory. I mean, they're so extraordinary. I think this taps back into what you were talking before, the kind of posters that people were interacting with in their, when they're going to medical centers. 
Yeah. Um, this one in particular is uh, a commission requested by MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology um, Biochemical um, Department and Biomedical Department, I believe. And they um, requested an image for the um, uh, Wabanaki Confederacy uh, tribe tribal people, which include the Cosmoquati, Mi'kmaq, uh, Penobscot peoples, um, and we, you know, we call them the people of the Dawnland out east. And uh, they're doing a study on gut microbiome, so the gut microflora and how it uh, relates to immunity and to you know, other health concerns. And so they wanted a, a way to show uh, probiotics and prebiotics working within the gut, um, but on that cultural level. And so I, you know, used the uh, beadwork motifs of those peoples up in the East Coast, um, their tribal designs um, to, to create um, the idea of what prebiotics are. Prebiotics are that chemical oligosaccharides in the top corner right there that help, you know, with other, you know, the foods we eat and the pre uh, probiotics uh, that exist um, within the foods we eat and that are also living in our guts. Um, how they interact and then become intertwined and become whole designs. And that's just like the idea of how the, these, this biome works together to create, you know, our digestive tract, whether, you know, it's a healthy digestive tract. Mm -hmm. There's one more I was hoping we could get to here. Um, I would I'd love to just go through all of these, but this one um, has the nuclear element. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the DNA damage piece. Uh, it's just basically showing um, what elements can harm the DNA. So you have the nuclear signs in there. You have, I believe, uh, have symbols for arsenic, uh, uranium, uh, even reactive oxygen species uh, within those. So some, anything that can harm DNA uh, is in that uh, little yellow circle. And it's basically a wrecking ball crashing into DNA just to show that there is a breakage, there is harm happening. Um, and just, just the idea, because uh, this is what we're trying to convey when we meet communities living in and around abandoned uranium mines. And, you know, the possibilities of um, how these contaminants and these exposures might be affecting their, their, their bodies. Just to follow up on, on this, because as you've explained it, so this is an image of great violence. I mean, this is, as I see it, I mean, this is the disruption of DNA strand uh, because of nuclear exposure. And that disruption, I mean, there's something quite terrifying to me about this, this picture. I mean, in, in a, I mean that with great respect. I mean, it's really effective in that, in that way because you, you don't know when that damage will manifest itself. And so this is something that might be coming later in a person's life or in a community's life. Is that also a tradition in Zuni art to to grapple with loss or trauma? Um, it's not necessarily something we portray. A lot of what we portray is really positive and educational. Mm -hmm. um, so this is kind of, uh, like I said, uh, negativity, death and dying is a sort of taboo and when, when we um, portray it. So instead, it's, it's the idea like this, should it be a standalone painting? I, I always tell my colleagues that mm. you always have to follow up with the whole one and the one that is regenerating the DNA repair, because there, that's there. There's the happy, uh, at least a, like a good side of the story where our um, 
bodies can repair itself, the DNA can repair itself in, in little ways, whether through medicine or through our natural immune uh, immunities, but the different ways our bodies heal itself. And, and it's, um, this painting right here portrays just that using the idea of a, of a string of beads becoming undone and, and just going back in and restringing it. It's, it's going to fix itself. And the ideas of, you know, the motifs of flowers and reblooming, regenerating. Um, you have to follow up with that too, because uh, that other painting is, it's pretty negative. It's like really stand uh, when we try not to put it as a standalone. Just, right. and it's just there to literally show that that's what we mean by like DNA damage. Like there is something happening and, and, and it is repairable. And then that's when we can also segue into the parts that are not repairable or what other things can happen. I think art is, is better is a better segue into that conversation than verbal. I uh, we we've noticed that. So that's so interesting. And thank you also. I mean that context is important that the that earlier image I showed should not be seen individually. It should be seen mm -hmm. in conjunction with this one so that you can tell a more complete story. Mm -hmm. yes. I'm gonna bring us out of this mode um and back into this. We're almost up on time. In fact, I've kept you too long. I, I figured I might when we started mm -hmm. talking about the artwork because it's so it's so profound. I mean, I you just you've got so much talent there and it's doing a lot of work too. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder um, just a sort of a final question here as we're thinking about moving into this period in which the case rates are going to come down, vaccination is going up. Um, how will you continue to reckon with COVID-19 in your artwork, do you think? Um, I had a, a hard time keeping up with the different um, vaccinations uh, in the beginning. I only did one painting on the mRNA vaccine and just how to break that down and visually explain it for, for the people. And before you know it, we had the Johnson's and Johnson's one come out. We had you know, the, the other ones are now in line to be uh, tested. And so I said, okay, maybe not so much the how to, how, how this vaccine works, but now um, I've had a lot of requests from other, uh, you know, communities uh, to keep up with the importance of actually getting the vaccine, um, much less the how it works, because that's kind of my thing in, uh, as you saw with the other pieces that I'm more interested more more wanting to give the people an idea of how something works, how a system works. And right now they just, they want, uh, there's a focus and a need to, to talk about the importance and to, to clear away misconceptions on, on the vaccine and, and how to continue to keep yourself safe. And I think that's, we're gonna continue with the PSAs. The other uh, website I gave you, the AEIHB, the Albuquerque Area Indian Health Board, has allowed us to uh, feature our um, other PSAs. There's um, little videos we put together. There's an art slide of what to do with um, your emotions during the pandemic, your emotions during trying to convince family to get um, vaccinated or to quarantine. Uh, we're starting to think more along, along the lines of behavioral health. So I'm going to um, keep up uh, that um, momentum in that direction and we'll go from there as as of right now though with um with things kind of easing up a bit we can actually start probably doing things on reflecting what we learned and what we 
we now know and how we move 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 beyond this. So, but it's it's going to be nice to put on that um, mental health awareness uh, portion to it as well. We're just putting up here on the screen that people can find the aaihb.org website to find out some more about the issues we've been discussing here and then the link also to Mallory's artwork um, where you can see those uh, posters and paintings that we've been discussing here. Um, so we're up on time. So I just want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. I'll be talking with David Nunez tomorrow, who's the technology director for the MIT Museum. And I know many of you have been reading his blog throughout the pandemic's uh, um, spiritual computing. I hope you'll join me for that discussion tomorrow at 530 with David. And um, Mallory, thank you for this gift of time today and uh, explanation and going through so patiently and talking about the history and also the artwork. Um, all I can say is keep doing this uh, extraordinary work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time.